Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is Fundamentals of Organizing, where we're talking with organizers about the craft. Today, our guest is Socket Sony. I first met Socket in Chicago. The phone at our office rang, and someone said, George, there's a guy named Socket Sony on the phone, and he wants to talk with you. I'm glad I took the call. He's become a good friend and someone whose organizing is quite different from mine. Because of that, I learn and get sharper for being around him. I think of Socket as someone who practices the fundamentals, but is anything but orthodox in how and where he applies them. He has built three organizations, all created in the context of crises. Socket is the founder of the New Orleans Workers Center for Racial Justice, the National Guest Workers Alliance, and most recently, Resilience Force, which organizes workers, families, and local governments to rewrite the rules of recovery. Hey, Socket, good to see you. George, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm on the road and glad to be talking to somebody that spends a lot of time on the road. So I don't actually know, like, when did you first realize you were doing something resembling organizing? Well, I was in Chicago and I was running a theater company called the Antigone Project. I was undocumented and I was running around in ESL classrooms and in restaurant kitchens and in community colleges that had adult classes. I was going everywhere that immigrants hung out and I was auditioning people for a play idea. Basically, the idea was that all these fascinating characters that I came across in my normal life, I would bring them all together and we'd use the structures of Greek tragedy to tell the stories of present day immigrants. Now, let me tell you, George, this was genius. It was gripping, (laughs) gripping with genius. I mean, it was nuanced. It wasn't angry at all. And it, it certainly wasn't agitprop, you know, this was Mm. finely tuned human tragedy, okay? And everybody participating in it loved it. Hmm. And nobody else who watched it loved it. So this was real, real art. But, you know, those auditions and listening to those stories and crafting those Hmm. evenings and then finding the audiences, people who needed to hear those stories, in a way, it was organizing. I, I didn't put that name to it. But, you know, that whole exercise had some of the same ingredients. First of all, I was stepping out and letting people know that I was undocumented Mm -hmm. so that they could have a stake in it. And so that we could build relationships based on exchange. Right. And I was spending a lot of time listening. And then I was collaborating with them to build a different outcome for their Stories and mm-hmm. and in a way, I think that year I spent running that theater company, it really trained me to at least receive my organizing training wide open. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I got it, it. It all translated very well. What happened next? Well, nine eleven happened, mm-hmm. and things became very bad for undocumented people. Suddenly, what had been plays in living rooms and in ESL classrooms and small theaters in Chicago, plays that had been about missing family, were suddenly plays about being terrified. Mm -hmm. You may never again see your family. Refugees, asylum seekers, people who had been undocumented for a long time, like me, who believed that any moment now there would be immigration reform, and all those hopes were dashed. And I remember how it felt suddenly 
both futile and irresponsible to be making plays out of the things we were hearing. I wanted somehow to take action. You know, I came from a milieu in India where activism wasn't marginal, where it was very much part of the mainstream. Mm. So I wasn't a stranger to protest, but I didn't really understand until then what goes into building, you know, the muscle of protest, what's on the other side of it. How do you build power, not just protest? All of that I started to learn after 9-11 when I had something at stake. Mm. So then what did you learn about how to do the thing and what role did Chicago play in that? You know, I wound up getting a job at a small organization that doesn't exist anymore, which was a coalition of immigrant service providers. Welfare reform defunded a lot of immigrant services and they wanted to win that money back. But those services were also a source of dignity and care Mm. and protection. And this coalition, which ran ESL classes, ran a lot of services. You know, what I got out of that job was they were so close to their base. And I got to sit with people of all backgrounds for a long time to understand their immigrant stories. Their organizing model, though, was to rent a bus, pull it up in front of an ESL class or in front of an old folks home and say, well, you know, you know that that trip you were taking today that we were taking you on to go gambling at the casino? Well, you're going to Springfield instead. And people would (laughs) cheer. Then there'd be a free trip to Springfield with food on the other side. There was really no conversation There was really no political formation. There was really no power building. So what I tried to do there was turn what was a turnout factory, a really great mobilization operation into organizing. I didn't have a lot of help, but uh, I remember stepping into a pretty unlit office that looked like an interrogation room and and sitting under a swinging light bulb there to do a one-on-one with me during my first month at work was a a banjo player and it was you, his name was George Gale. So we talked to organizing and I remember getting my pamphlets, the shell trap pamphlets. And that was actually the first time I actually read what to do. You know, a lot of people don't tell you, they tell you why to do it and it sounds amazing, but they don't actually tell you what to do. So I started on this journey of looking for issues, building leaders, being rigorous about the number of house meetings I did, you know, all of that good Chicago training. I look back at it now, I I didn't start at a place where I had lots of organizing colleagues and great supervision, you know, but as a result, I really had to to build the relationships myself. Mm -hmm. And that was actually really valuable to kind of Hmm. learn how to build the sturdy relationships, you know, that would last and that I could take into risk-taking and campaigns. That was really useful. I think one of the things you could teach lots of organizers about is just having a nose for the fight that might be the exact right fight to open up a bunch of space for a constituency, a geography, for an idea. And I didn't even know, one, what you might call that, but I think it's one of your great strengths. And if you could either describe it and maybe you know tell a story about one of your favorite fights that falls into that category? I remember an evening in Chicago on the north side, I had been assigned a stretch of Rogers Park that was crowded with low-income 
usually older renters, mostly African-American, but increasingly also South Asian and Latino. And I was knocking on doors. And a lot of times when I knocked on the doors of older folks, what they'd say to me is, you know, I don't need to join anything. I'm on my way out of here. I have a house in Arkansas. I have a house in Louisiana. I've got family in Mississippi. I'm going to Alabama. I'm going back next year. Mm. For people, you know, in the evening of their lives and they were, they were getting ready, they said, to leave. It reminded me of a lot of why immigrants would tell me they don't want to join. They would say, well, I'm only here for three more years and then I'm back to India. You know, uh, of course, three years later, they were still right there running their store. But one particular night, it was really different. People opened their doors and they let me in. And they, they were just sitting there watching what was happening. And that evening, I sat there with them and watched images of people being rescued from rooftops in New Orleans. This was in August 2005. And mm. I was with all these people who were from the South, through the Great Migration or more recently, through family. They were all from the South, mostly African-Americans. And I watched the levees breach and the flooding of New Orleans play out through their eyes and, and kind of got this feeling that I had to go. So mm. I went, I uh, went as a relief worker, a volunteer for two weeks, and I wound up moving my life there and becoming an organizer there. And that's where I really learned to take openings. Mm. Um, it was a place where every institution of government or civil society had been destroyed there was no governance. There was an extraordinary sense of pain, loss, and chaos. And a lot of people who I had met who came before me told me that going down to Mississippi during the civil rights movement gave them new eyes with which to mm. America and gave them the, the DNA for their organizing. I think being in New Orleans gave me my DNA, gave me my sense. And my theory of organizing is there's pain all around, but inside of that pain, you have to find the opening. And if you find the opening and find your foothold, a strong foothold, and act from it, no matter how narrow, you can change everything around you. And so I didn't have a lot of tools going into New Orleans. You know, it was not a place mm -hmm. I had ever been. It was a place where I was a stranger. And I had come from a place where the playbook was institutional organizing sturdy mm -hmm. institutions, right? And people inside those institutions to make change. And here, all the institutions were gone, right? And were being rebuilt a lot of times by people who were still living out of cars or commuting from Atlanta. So it was a different organizing challenge. And I got to use some of the Chicago playbook, but I was mostly organizing migrant workers who had come to rebuild the city. I built committees. Then when I returned the following week, half those committees had been deported or had moved on to the next construction site. It was a whirlwind. And I sort of feel like in organizing, when you see an insurmountable challenge, you actually have to let the river help you cross it. You have to dive in and let the logic, the center of gravity of that challenge provide its own momentum. That's, I feel like, what I did and what my team did to build a solid base and a foothold. You use the term take openings. Can you say more what you mean by that? Well, the work I'm currently doing is an example of taking a big opening. 
in the last 15 years since Hurricane Katrina, there have been increasingly frequent and destructive hurricanes along with floods and fires. What was supposed to be a once in a hundred year storm has been replicated and surpassed many times. And lots of people from all rungs of life are feeling the pain. When a hurricane hits a town, when a, a flood comes in and defeats an entire school district or 40 school districts in a single county, you have an entire community at its knees. Homeowners, renters, school principals, property owners, companies, hospitals, you know, the mayor, the governor, these are all people who are suddenly organized around solving one challenge, which is how to help people get home, how to keep them home, how to turn the lights back on, and how to prepare well for the next disaster. You're trying to, if you're a mayor, keep your tax base. That is what's happening in half of America. Right. And that's an enormous challenge. It's pain all around. It's extraordinarily difficult. And I don't think disasters are opportunities. They're just tragic. They're awful. You know, they don't help anybody. But what they are is openings. Inside a disaster situation, you have these tiny glimmers of where you can come in. And if you do the work, where you can open up people's mm-hmm. relationships to each other, people's relationships to the idea of government, people's relationship to the ideas of outsiders and immigrants. And so the work I lead now with Resilience Force tries to come in, take the opening, pry it wider and work inside it. So in a place like the Florida Panhandle that had a massive hurricane in 2018, we came in and found that all of these Trump voters who hated immigrants and wanted them gone suddenly were relying on undocumented immigrants to rebuild their homes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a profound opening. Suddenly there's a basis for a bond, a relationship. The question for an organizer is, can you come in and help the bond and the relationship outlast the transaction of rebuilding, right? That's an example of an opening. Another example is in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and these deeply conservative parts of the country where people believe there's no role for government. Well, suddenly after a hurricane, people want more government. Right. People want government assistance. People want a public option for rebuilding their home or their school. People want their benefits to last a very long time. People are standing in bread lines hoping to get SNAP, the nutritional assistance program, or disaster aid. Well, that's an opening to talk to them about what's government for. Aren't you the kind of person who deserves government help, who needs it right now? And, you know, the thing is that to take this opening is to have faith that people are movable. People can change, mm-hmm. people can grow. It's also to realize you might have been wrong about them. You might have been wrong about what they thought. They may not have been as rigid as how you viewed them from far away. But here I am, you know, having dinner with families of Trump supporters, you know, wearing T-shirts that are anti-Roe v. Wade T-shirts, sitting down with undocumented immigrants and interpreters, having dinner and learning about each other. Well, those are the kinds of openings we need to take more and more in in this increasingly chaotic American landscape. 
Do you think climate change is maybe one of the ultimate openings and climate disaster? Disasters of any kind are climate change, the pandemic, the disaster of a shooting or gun violence mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. All of these traumatic experiences tend to carry within them the ingredients of their own healing. Mm-hmm. And grief clarifies people's purpose, pulls people together. And for maybe for a moment, we tend to stop and say, what's important to us? Mm-hmm. You know, what's important right now? I am sitting in my house. Two of my four walls are gone. And, you know, there's mold on my floor and I've lost all my possessions. But thank God I'm still here. My kids are safe. My dog has found his way back. And how important is it right now in my life to hold on to my idea that the immigrant worker who is my only shot at fixing my roof before the next rainfall should be deported? How important is that to me on this particular evening? You know, it used to be the second most important thing to me. It's now like the 35th most important thing. And I can work with these people practically. I think that's the kind of opening that you're presented with in any kind of disaster. But climate change is the organizer, you know, of so many of our national energies. And we should be thinking about how to take the openings that it prepares and provides. What have you learned about teaching teams and, you know, other organizers to think in this way? Like it's one thing for you to kind of, I think, you know, have found it in, in New Orleans. And I think it's been a key part of the way you organize since. Like, what have you learned about teaching others? And I think most of what I've learned is that this has to be somatic. It has to be muscle memory. Hmm. Don't take openings by sitting around and drawing up a power analysis and building a coalition and figuring out the messaging. I mean, all those things are important, but you really learn to take openings if you train your reflexes, shore up your spirit, you know, you kind of dive in and you learn, you learn from gravity. You learn from what's the center of gravity in a conversation I'm having. What coalesces people on the worst day of their lives? Mm -hmm. What do they care more about on this day that they cared a lot less about before this disaster happened? What are the driving energies of people right now that are actually counterintuitive to me. And I think we learn these things by, by diving in and then by building the muscle memory to engage with people in this way, building the muscle memory to listen and especially building the muscle memory to come in and bear witness and support people's dignity at a moment where every material thing that were the badges of their prestige before have been taken away from them, Mm. right? You come in and even in the way that you hand out food, you're not making someone feel bereft Mm -hmm. or poor, right? You're making them feel that there's a partnership. So I think that proximity, I think that that empathic partnership is really important. I think stepping back from that at a campaign level, it is really important though to be clear what kinds of values and politics you want to move through the opening. Hmm. What's the use of the opening if you didn't know ahead of time, when you get it, what do you want to move? 
take ideas of government, well-funded, effective, good, big government that's compassionate, that's a vehicle for transformation, you know, that's based on ideas of interdependence, that, you know, we're all in this together is better than we're all in this alone. I mean, those ideas, I think we have to, as organizers, work mm. those out. I mean, right. we'll learn along the way how to talk about them, but we should be crystal clear that racial justice, that broad, big, supportive care, all of these things are fundamental values to move through the openings when we have them. What's a campaign that you're most proud of? One campaign I'm really proud of is the first real campaign I ever did in New Orleans. I had recruited people to join things that I hadn't built, but others had in Chicago. But I was really new at this. So I got to New Orleans and I'd go every morning at 5.30 or 6 and hit all these hotels that people were staying in. After Katrina, FEMA gave vouchers to hotels to pay for residents of New Orleans to live whose homes had been destroyed. And for months and months, these residents lived there. For months and months, these residents of the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans East, all these parts of New Orleans that had been flooded, lived in this cluster of hotels. And the hotel owner received these vouchers because his wife was in the legislature. So these hotels were operating as if fully booked. Now, these hotels could have gone to the rooms of any of these residents, knocked on a door and said, hey, do you want a job? I need clerks and receptionists and house cleaners. Instead, to staff up, the hotel sent recruiters to Bolivia, Peru, the Dominican Republic, you know, to get workers who could work for much cheaper. Instead of paying, 12 to $14 to a New Orleans resident, they went and got workers who they could pay $6.25 an hour, right? So they had this captive immigrant workforce. The African-American residents living in these hotels were furious because they needed work and they unleashed their fury mostly at the immigrant workers. The immigrant workers were nonplussed and they were hapless and they said, well, we, we didn't ask for this. We don't like the working conditions. So I organized the immigrant workers at all 14 of these hotels. The first leader I recruited into the campaign turned up to be this extraordinary man named Daniel Castellanos, who, you know, all these years later, 16 years later, still works with me. He's the co-founder of Resilience Force, my current organization. But he and I really partnered to build that committee of workers. And as much as I wanted to go fast and hard, Danielle was so attuned to the politics among the workers. He knew when to go slow. He knew when to be cautious. He knew when to polarize. He knew when to back off because he was so wired into the life of this workforce at this company. And he and I partnered really effectively. It was a kind of one of those partnerships you dream of, you know, and he was a leader you dream of. We were both new at it, but we partnered. Mm -hmm. And I brought all these Chicago tools, you know, I did one-on-ones and I did accountability sessions with the bosses and accountability meetings. The, the campaign eventually, you know, was a mixed bag. The workers, you know, received all of this punishment and retaliation from the employer. Many of them you know, went back to their home countries or onto other workplaces. But ultimately, the legacy of the campaign was 
you know, it led to a federal lawsuit, which then led to policy change and importantly led to a lot of recognition for workers like Danielle. And it, mm. it taught him and taught me what to build towards in the coming years. So I'm proud of that for a few reasons. One is I just think organizing is a chance to make relationships for a lifetime mm-hmm. out of people you would never otherwise meet. And right. I have that in Danielle and other people. It's also a chance to learn about the economy. And I was right on the cutting edge of what would become an economy that's billions of dollars large and I'm still organizing in right now. So I learned that. And then the workers you know, won important gains. That was a great campaign, a really incredible learning experience for me. Also sounds like multiracial solidarity that might not have been there otherwise. That's right. And the extraordinary fact of people who were themselves homeless and living day to day in these hotels, not knowing when they'd go back to their homes. Right. Those people nonetheless coming out to support immigrant workers in their fight and the kinds of bonds and solidarity that led to, that was really extraordinary. I got to hear one more. People need stories of good fights right now. I think a a lot of the organizing community is a little beat up. What's another favorite? Well, one day sitting in my office in New Orleans, I got a call from what appeared to be a young man. He sounded young. He sounded scared. He sounded Mm. kind of desperate. And he asked me if I worked for the State Department. And, you know, you never say no, but you can't say yes. So I said, well, how do you want the State Department to help you? And he said, well, I I, I need to be rescued. It it turned out this was a young man in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and he was calling on behalf of him and his friends who had been brought from about 12 different countries to work for the Hershey factory the legendary Hershey chocolate. Mm-hmm. So I told him, I'm not from the State Department, but I, you know, I, I work with a nonprofit. I'll come out and meet you. So I you know, went down the hallway and convinced my team members to come with me to Hershey, Pennsylvania, all the way from New Orleans, to go have a house meeting with a right. group of migrant workers who Just were down stuck somewhere down the street. Yeah. It turned out over the last many years, what had been happening is that Hershey, Pennsylvania had these union factories, right? But their bargaining contract left out the warehouses. Hmm. So the kinds of warehouses you have now organizing, you know, Amazon's warehouses, Hershey had a huge logistics operation, packing, you know, and lifting and, and sending out their goods. And this part of the operation wasn't union. And over time, Hershey had subcontracted their logistics operation And their subcontractor had managed to cut corners by bringing in these 19, 20-year-olds from 12 countries who thought they were coming in for an internship, you know, at the Hershey Corporation with Mr. Hershey and ended up being basically a below minimum wage packaging workforce. Well, this was the very factory that 100 years or more before had unionized as a result of a heroic almost unprecedented sit-down strike. Hmm. So we built committees among the workers. We helped them overcome their fear. And we got them to a place 
where they were ready to act. And we proposed to them that from time to time, the labor movement in the United States has done all of these different things. So you pick one. What do you want to do as your first action on Hershey and its subcontractors? Well, they picked a sit-down strike. So we had the entire labor movement of Pennsylvania, the AFL-CIO, SEIU, and everyone else arriving together that morning. There was a labor leader who arrived with a blank check because he was so moved and he was willing to write a, a number to bail out if people, hmm. there were any arrests. The students walked off the production lines and indeed brought the factory to its knees through a sit-down strike. It was the first sit-down strike at Hershey since a hundred or more years before. And what was amazing about that is not only did it take the lid off, you know, this, this practice of using these migrant worker visas to undercut wages and working conditions, but the demand that these Hershey migrant workers adopted was that the jobs they had should go back to being jobs that came with rights, respect, and a union contract for Pennsylvanians. There was that mm. level of awareness and solidarity that months of organizing had built. That didn't come accidentally. We had these workers, these student workers, sitting at kitchen tables in Hershey, Pennsylvania, listening to ordinary local people who'd lost those jobs, those very jobs. And that was, again, an in incredible, amazing moment of solidarity a month before Occupy Wall Street. Hmm. And, you know, for those workers, it may have been the most important day of their lives. Yeah. Saka, what made you go do that? I mean, most organizations don't kind of drop what they're doing in New Orleans and head up to Pennsylvania. Why did you do that? Well, I have told this story before, and I've said that it was because we had a well-worked-out strategy that we would find these migrant workers wherever we could find them, and if they were ready to move, we had an operation ready to come in and help. And this campaign, for example, wound up you know, launching on the front page of the New York Times, mm -hmm. that we were trying to change the narrative from immigrants are scared to act to immigrants are the lifeblood of this new worker movement. And so in the past, I've described these very well-fitting parts of a plan. And I think what's probably much more true on the day that we decided to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, was that there was such an incredible intuition my team and I had that if we could help these workers, that they would truly change something, mm -hmm. that they were in this iconic factory, mm -hmm. in this iconic part of America. And if we could pull the lid off this factory, then all of America could see what was happening to manufacturing in this country. These were not just any workers, they were Hershey's workers. And right. we could do that. You know, there was just this very, very intuitive sense that these workers have their hand on something. We don't know what it is, but maybe they're unique in that way. I think that was the, mm. I think you have to have a nose for those things. Yeah. You know, Even if you just are organizing on your six blocks of turf, you yeah. have to develop your nose for where those openings are, who to follow, what leads to follow. It's like the detective in the Scandinavian detective novels, you know, and he runs into his car and, 
pulls out and his coworker asks him, what are you looking for? And he says, I'll find out when I get there. <laughs> that's, that's kind of, I think, yeah. half of the game. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think you're especially good at it, but I think you're right. It kind of applies no matter what your geographic limits are. We're in a, another kind of critical moment in this country's history. Like, what are a few fundamentals that you think are going to be really important in this next phase? I think listening is a big fundamental. Having conversations where you do 85% of the listening. I think being curious and seeking out people who are different from you, who think differently from you, and conversely, not assuming that they wouldn't agree with you. Right. You know, those are some assumptions, I think, that are the building blocks of organizing. But then it does really come back to the one-on-one and that relational meeting. So I think those you know, those foundations will never go away. And this is always brought home to me every time I end up in a new city where there's been a new hurricane. Hmm. I always roll in about 72 hours after a hurricane and I always get to the Home Depot and there's hundreds of workers. And always there's those three or four workers who've known me for years, who vouch for me with the others. They always say, oh yeah, we know him. And what they mean by that is not that just that they've seen me around. I've sat and had my one-on-ones with them. Mm-hmm. And I've kept up not just a relationship of friends, but an organizing relationship with them, where our relationship has gone through stress tests and debriefs and plotting and planning and deep listening and recruiting others. And they're practiced with that. And even if I haven't seen them in five years, they are the bricks on which I build the next foundation in this new town. I think that the bonds you build through those processes, especially with people you didn't agree with on mm. something important, wind up lasting. You've talked a lot about healing through the organizing and through being in relationship and through solidarity. And what's the responsibility of us as organizers to do some of that kind of healing of ourselves? to be able to go out and do the work well. And I'll just say, it's something I've just been thinking a lot more about, that it's not something necessarily anybody told me or taught me to do, but I I wonder how good we can be at this and good we can be with others if we're not good with ourselves. It's a really good question. I think as organizers, we have to be deeply responsible for our healing and understand that it'll never stop. We go through our own cycles of love and loss and grief and trying again and sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing at love again. And we break promises and we make mistakes and we're human and all of that seeps in. Mm -hmm. And the point is not to hide all that from someone you might be in an organizing relationship with, but to think about how to share that in a way That doesn't become the point. Mm -hmm. It just becomes the way in for them. Mm -hmm. What people want is deep recognition. You want me to see you. I want you to see me. We want to see each other. And that means being able to see the bad parts and the good, right? I think that is really important. In the context of climate change or the pandemic, or in the context of racial reckonings and repeated violence, continued state violence, you know, these are three 
deeply traumatic experiences that are happening mm-hmm. to us at once. And people are working out their feelings about that. Someone who you're organizing behind the door isn't coming to the door to answer a policy issue. Nope. They're working out their feelings about living in Florida and getting flooded third time in a year. The fact that they're not insured and they're taking care of their mom. And so again, there, I have to admit that I'm scared too, yeah. right? And I don't have the answers. And you'll share that with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's okay if as a result of that, the organizing processes take a lot longer. We're not going anywhere, you know, right. and, and let them take longer and let the bonds form deeper because we tended to each other in the process. Yeah. I think we'll get to the place we want a lot quicker that way anyway. Socket, it's so great to get to talk organizing with you. Always great to talk to you, George. Good luck on your travels. Yes. Hope I run into you somewhere out there. All right. Bye now. Bye, George. Take openings. I often hear people talk about crises as an opportunity, usually to advance an agenda. Within climate disasters, you might expect that agenda to be clean energy. The agenda I hear in Socket's taking of openings is relationships. The agenda is seeing each other in a new light, making a bet that this moment of disaster might be a chance to come together when everything else is falling apart. I'd take this real-time political education over the classroom style any day of the week. Socket talks of developing a nose for openings. I think this is important. One thing I see in some organizers is a tendency to keep their head down, working the plan, doing more one-on-ones, identifying leaders. This is largely a good thing. But if you are not looking up to see what else is happening in the world or the town, you will miss openings. The conditions your organizing is happening in have changed, and you are still plugging away in the old world. The best organizers I've seen are working the plan, practicing the fundamentals, but are also always tracking what's shifting in politics, culture, and the economy, and then making calculations as to when those developments are worth making a shift in the strategy. This does not mean we enter every opening. Big and bad things seem to happen in our world every single day. We have to ask, is this opening a chance to advance a campaign we are running? Does it reorganize the electorate? Does it open space for a new narrative? I leave this conversation inspired by how Socket and Resilience Force walk through openings as an opportunity to meet unmet human needs. As he said, you want me to see you, I want you to see me, we want to see each other. You might find Socket on Twitter at Socket underscore Sony, but he's more likely to be chasing hurricanes or in a room with hurricane survivors and immigrant workers making plans to rebuild, and making new meaning of what might be possible together. I'm writing about the fundamentals of organizing at georgegale.substack.com. Sign up now at georgegale.substack.com. This podcast was produced by Fundamentals of Organizing and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Stacey E. Wood. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. See you next time.